you, Brian. Thank you, Ruth. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, could I invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 11. Uh, it's page 68 in the Red Pew Bibles. And uh, we'll pick up from where we left off last week. And during these next uh, 20, 25 minutes or so, we're going to consider two major events. Uh, two history-making and history-defining moments. The Passover and the Exodus, which have been described as formational events because they, they reconfigure everything. They reshape everything from this point on. Now, if you were here in March 2011, and I said this last week as well, but if you were here in March 2011, some of this uh, might or should sound familiar because we looked at Exodus chapters 11 and 12 during our Essential Word series. But as we revisit this part of the story, uh, this part of God's story, and therefore this part of our story, I want to mention up front and draw attention to the issue of obedience. And I kind of want to just put that out there right at the beginning this morning. Because if you want to experience freedom, ultimate freedom, if you want to go God's way and journey in the right direction, then obedience, doing what God says and asks of you, is absolutely essential. And I'll explain more a little later. Now, for those who uh, weren't here last Sunday, or even if, if you were, let me set the scene and recap the immediate past. Moses and his brother Aaron have been to see the Pharaoh on a couple of occasions. And they have asked him or instructed him on God's behalf to let the Israelites go. They had been slaves in Egypt for something like 400 years. And so God says via Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh, let my people go. And the primary reason God asks Pharaoh to let his people go is so that they would worship him. Pharaoh consistently refused to entertain their request. And that led to God unleashing the full force of his plagues against Pharaoh, against the Egyptian officials, and all the Egyptian people. But the purpose, the reason behind the plagues was so that everyone associated with them or directly impacted by them, that is Moses, the Israelites, the Egyptians, and Pharaoh himself, so that everyone would know who was God. That everyone would know God in a deeper and newer way. Because as we said last week, there is nothing in life more important than knowing God. Now by the time we get to Exodus 11, nine plagues have been and gone. People's knowledge, people's understanding of God had been challenged, had been shaken and expanded as water turned to blood, as frogs appeared everywhere, as dust became gnats, as flies covered everything, as livestock died, as boils festered, as hailstones poured down, and a thick blanket of darkness descended for 72 hours. As that was happening, all nine of those, people's understanding of God was being stretched. Their vision of God was being enlarged. But in this chapter, chapter 11, 
we discover the harrowing details of the tenth plague. The last and by far the most severe. So let's read from verse 1 to verse 3. Now the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. And after that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. Bracket. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people. And Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by a Pharaoh's officials and by the people. Close bracket. Just pause there for a moment. Because for me, that final phrase of verse 3 is mind-blowing. Moses himself was highly regarded by Egypt, in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. Now you'll remember that not that long ago, Moses was despised by the Israelite leadership. By, you could say, his own people. They hated him. They wanted God to judge him. Because as far as they were concerned, Moses had signed his people's death warrant. Here, he is greatly esteemed by the Egyptian officials and the people who have been on the receiving end of the nine plagues that he was instrumental in unleashing. How does that work? How come the people who have suffered so much because of Moses highly esteem him? The only uh, explanation I can give or suggest is that because Moses was prepared to do what he'd been asked to do. Moses was prepared to continue to be obedient to God. And as a result, the Lord granted him favor with all people, even those who might consider him their enemy. And I honestly believe there's a real lesson in that for us because sometimes, sometimes we tend to think that taking a stand for God And sharing God's word in certain situations will turn people against us. It will rub people up the wrong way. It will create tension. And yet what you often find is that deep down, people actually respect you. Even admire you for being true to your convictions and doing or saying what you believe is right. Let me give you an example of this. I remember working, whenever I worked in a commercial insurance broker, whenever I did have a real job, uh, I remember there was a guy who worked with me. And he, was, he was a committed Christian. And often the directors in work would come to him and ask him to do things that quite honestly were wrong, were dishonest, on behalf of a number of clients. And Harry used to just refuse. And the rest of us sitting in the office just couldn't quite believe how prepared he was to just stand up for what he believed. And he did wind certain people up the wrong way. And some of the directors got incredibly frustrated by Harry and by his unwillingness to do what they said they wanted him to do and why he was so prepared to do what he believed was the right thing to do. But you know something? What I discovered over time was people really respected him. They actually admired him for being true to his convictions. 
And so what I would say to you this morning is, if you're in a situation and you think, see if I speak out for God here, see if I share God's word into the situation, I'm going to rub people up the wrong way. You may do that. But the story of Moses seems to reveal that in the long term, people will actually respect you. They might even highly esteem you, even though they don't necessarily agree with you. Back to the story. Verses 4 to 9. Where Moses tells Pharaoh the actual details of this final plague. Here's a, here's a summary of the critical information. You can scan down these verses with me. Here's what Moses said to Pharaoh. First of all, it's going to happen at midnight. There's the timing, Pharaoh, midnight. Secondly, it's going to result in the death of every firstborn son in Egypt. And by the way, Pharaoh, that includes your son. Third, it will cause unprecedented national distress, way in excess of anything you've ever experienced to date. Fourthly, Israel is going to be protected, spared. Fifthly, the outcome, the result of all of this, freedom. Freedom for the Israelites. They're going to leave. And so Moses delivers this information. He doesn't wait for a response. Notice this. Because according to verse 9, he already knows Pharaoh's reaction. And so, according to verse 8, in his anger, and the Bible actually says in his hot anger, Moses turns on his heels, storms out of Pharaoh's presence. Pharaoh is a prime example of someone determined to do their own thing. Rather than the right thing. And Pharaoh's story forever stands as a sobering tale of what happens whenever someone consistently disobeys God. And as ever, whenever you continue to choose to disobey God, the consequences are extreme. And as midnight approaches, the consequences for Pharaoh were extreme. Into chapter 12. And in chapter 12, you discover that Moses and Aaron had actually received detailed instructions from God to share with the Israelite community concerning how they were to prepare, how they were to get ready for the 10th plague. You see, up to now, all the Israelites did was stand back and watch the other nine plagues descend. That's all they did. They just stood back, watched. Now, as far as the 10th plague is concerned, they've got to make preparations. Each family, have a look at this, each family or household is to take care of a one-year-old defect-free male lamb for four days. And at twilight, on the fourth day, they're to kill it. Then they were instructed to smear some of the blood round their door frames. Then they were to go back inside the house, roast the rest of the animal and eat it along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. They were told to eat it quickly and they were told to eat it dressed for a journey because this was not a meal to savor. Because on that night, God was going to pass through Egypt and he was going to take out every firstborn, human and animal. But whenever he came to a home where the door frames were smeared with blood, he'd pass over. 
he'd move on. He'd spare life. He wouldn't strike. Now, although this was going to be a night to forget for the Egyptians, it was clearly going to be a night to remember for the Israelites. This was going to be a night unlike any other night. And just to ensure that they knew how crucial and formational this event was, God instructs them to mark it. To mark it for years to come. This event was to linger long in their memory. Recollection was to become a lasting ordinance, according to verses 14 and 24. Why? God was saying, listen, you must never, ever, ever forget your liberation, your deliverance, and your rescue. And you must tell this story to your children and to your children's children. You've got to keep telling it. Now all of this, and I want you to try to put yourself in the people's position. All of this must have sounded really weird. They'd never roasted a lamb like this before. They'd never gathered its blood in a pan like this before. They'd never smeared blood on their door frames like this before. But God told them to do it. And what was their response? Obedience. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. Do you know, God often asks us to do strange things. Let me give you some examples of what God asks you and I to do. It's really weird. Pray for your enemies. Bless those who curse you. That's what God asks us to do. Forgive those who have sinned against you, even though they have never said sorry. That's weird. Turn the other cheek. Love the unlovely. Don't worry about tomorrow. That's really weird. question is, what are we choosing to do with what God has told us to do? How are we responding to God's word? Even though it makes no sense to lots of people in our world today, become like a servant. You want to be first? Take the possession of the least. It doesn't make sense. How are we responding? Bowing down and worship? doing everything the Lord has commanded us to do. Pharaoh disobeyed and he exposed himself and the nation to God's judgment. The Israelites chose to obey and as a result they experienced freedom and deliverance and they began a brand new journey in the right direction. Obedience to God is so important because on that appointed day at around midnight, something like this happened.
it, it's kind of hard to imagine what that must have been like. You know, the Egyptians had experienced nine plagues to date. And each of those plagues had increased with intensity, but surely nothing could have prepared them for that that carnage. And it's no wonder that before that night was out, the Bible tells us that that Pharaoh demanded to see the two brothers. And he finally gave in. As he held his firstborn, he's now dead. He says to Moses and I, just go. Please go and worship the Lord. You, your people, your livestock, leave us. And that night it says 600,000 Israelite men, plus women, plus kids, plus many other people, whoever they were, plus livestock, walked away from slavery and oppression. The dark days are over. A new future awaits. Here are a people who have been rescued and liberated by a God who went to extreme lengths to save. This was a remarkable salvation event. And for that reason, it was to become embedded in the people's memory. Forgetting this was never an option. It can't be an option. It was possible. Of course it's possible because memory does tend to fade with the passing of time. But to forget the Exodus, to forget the Passover would have been wrong on so many levels. And therefore, the need to revisit and relive these formational events was established very early on amongst the people of God. It became an annual event. It became an annual festival where people gathered together and they remembered and they retold their story of how their God had acted decisively in history and led them to freedom. And every single year, people would pause and recall the night whenever the angel of death passed over their homes and brought them out of slavery and set them free. The Passover involves the ritualized proclamation and passing on of the past core stories and traditions to a new set of eyes, ears and mouths, whether that's a new generation of children or whether that's the alien or the stranger in your midst is how someone has put this. Exodus 11 and 12 tell core stories. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, you find the Israelite community engaging in this annual festival. And as you enter the New Testament, you discover them still doing it year after year. Every year, around springtime, all the people in Israel would make their way to Jerusalem for this feast called the Feast of the Passover. And early on in the Gospels, you discover even Jesus did it. Every year, his parents, Mary and Joseph, went to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Passover. And when he was 12, they went up to the feast according to the custom. And today, as many of you will know, 
Passover remains a central festival for the Jewish tradition. But for us as Christians, and I made this point 18 months ago, but for us as Christians, we cannot read these chapters. We must not read these chapters. And we cannot reflect on them and not refer to what takes place here every single Sunday. Whether it's during the morning service or the evening service. All the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they make it clear that Jesus actually introduced what we do here every single Sunday during the Passover meal that he enjoyed with his disciples in that upper room the night before he was crucified. Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22 tell us that as Jesus recalled the Exodus story, he broke bread. And he broke it and he said, this is my body, eat it. And he took the cup of wine saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. As Jesus sat in that upper room with his disciples, he knew he was about to die. He knew that in less than 24 hours, he was going to be nailed to an executioner's cross. But on what lay ahead in his death and his resurrection, Jesus also knew that God's new remarkable salvation event was taking place. And it, like the events of Exodus 12, should never be forgotten. Never be forgotten. So easy to forget. And that's why we're told to eat and drink. Why? In remembrance of Jesus. The images and the events of Exodus 12, they spill over. They inform our understanding of what we do here every Sunday. It's so easy to get into a habit. It's so easy just to go through the motions. And to forget that actually there are a number of images from Exodus 4 that inform why we do what we do. And very quickly, I just want to share four of those with you. You see, central to Exodus 12 is a defect-free lamb. Central to those people's salvation story was an unblemished <coughs> lamb. It's death. It's sacrifice. For our salvation, the lamb that dies is Jesus. Whenever John the Baptist saw Jesus approaching him, he pointed toward him and he said to everyone, look, behold, the Lamb of God. Paul is even more explicit when he writes to the church in Corinth. He says, for Christ, our Passover Lamb has been sacrificed. And Jesus was completely defect free. Yes, he was tempted in every way, but he was without sin. Lots of people tried to pin something on him uncover something wrong that he had done or about him but they couldn't and in the end in order to kill him they had to trump up false charges against him so that his death sentence would stick central to the Israelites remarkable salvation event was the slaughter of an unblemished lamb central to our story is the death of Jesus 
The second image that spills over and connects Passover to what we do here every Sunday is the blood that protects. See, God made it clear it was the presence of blood on the door frame that would guarantee your protection. The blood signified a death had already occurred. And therefore, as a result of its shed blood, the people were spared the impending and harrowing judgment of God. And they were granted new life. Further life. Life eternal. Now I know that that the parallels, in a sense, are obvious. And the connections scream loudly. But it really is worth clarifying. And we can, in a sense, sometimes lose say this. But it is the blood of Jesus that ensures our protection and liberation. It's his blood that was poured out for many. It's through his blood. These are all direct quotes from God's word. It's through his blood that we're brought near to God. It's through his blood we have redemption. It's because of his blood we can be forgiven. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin. Blood on the doorposts led to protection and life for the Israelites. Blood on a cross leads to our salvation. And therefore when we eat, particularly when we drink, we rejoice in its life-giving ability. Third thing, the importance of faith. This may not be that obvious, but you see, the Israelites were told by God what to do. They were given, given instructions. Here's what you do if you want to be set free, if you want to be liberated, if you want to be delivered. Here's what you've got to do. And they stepped out in faith and did it. They didn't fully understand it. Couldn't fully get their heads around it. It seemed strange at one level. And yet it says they bowed, they worshipped, and they just did what they were told. And that remains the kind of challenge and the opportunity for us. God has told us what we need to do in order to be rescued. God has made it incredibly clear what fallen, sinful, messed up, dysfunctional human beings need to do in order to be set free. The question is, do we choose freedom? Do we step out in faith and say, yes, God, please. I want that, I need that. Many here have done that. Many here, like the Israelites, have bowed and worshipped and done that. And maybe some we have. And finally, the image that comes out of the Passover and Exodus that links to the Lord's Supper, something we do here and we're going to do this evening, is this idea of deliverance and liberation. You see, because of what God had done, Moses was able to lead the Israelites out of bondage and out of slavery and into a new freedom towards a land of promise. The Bible teaches, although this isn't popular teaching, I know that, that we're all sinners, that we're all slaves to sin. And that is why there's so much pain, why there's so much suffering in our world, why there's so much disillusionment, so much selfishness in human life and relationships. But what the Lord's Supper points to is an exodus led by Jesus where he delivers us from slavery to sin, from false allegiances and idols, from the corrupting and destructive powers of this world, from the evil desires that draw us away from the love of God. 